0: Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan.
1: The proof of God's amazing love is this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we have faith in Him, we dare with confidence to approach God. Let us join together in our prayer of confession. God, we want so badly to do what is right. In our zeal, we forget to for your voice, forging ahead on our own way. Since we cannot imagine another, we close our eyes to your image, shining in the faces of the wrong people. We close our ears to your word coming from those with whom we disagree. We close our hearts against those who are different. Instead, we offer advice or ultimatums or patronizing help when what you desire is relationship, acceptance, compassion, and justice. Let us keep silence.
0: Let us pray. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thankful
2: for Jay MacArthur here, for our children's message, and for the many gifts offered into our congregation. We worship here in Ann Arbor while a crew of our congregation, some 85, are worshiping in the tough place of Mackinac Island this morning. <laughs> so our hearts go out to them as I know their hearts connect with us here. Let's listen for God's word from John. Later on, Jesus appeared himself to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana, Zebedee's sons, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, children, have you caught anything to eat? No, they answered him. He said, "'Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some.'" And so they did, and there were so many fish they couldn't haul in the net. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "'It's the Lord.'" And Simon Peter heard it was the Lord. He wrapped his coat around himself, for he was naked, and he jumped into the water. And The other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, only about 100 yards." When they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net had it torn for even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, but Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and he did the same with some of the fish. Now was the third time that he appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs, and Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. And he asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Assured that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you stretch out your hands, and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said to show this the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, Follow me. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. In the opening line of her delightful poem, Catholic, the poet Fanny Howe pitches the perfect question for us today. What can you do after Easter? What do we do when Lent is complete and the resurrection is history? We'd been waiting for Easter for what seemed like months. We'd passed through Lent and the messiness of that season, and then we hit all the high and low marks of Holy Week, and then there was Easter. We know what we're supposed to do during Advent and Lent. We're to move along on a slow journey, to wait for Mary, to follow Jesus into the desert, to resist the devil's easy temptations, walk with Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, endure a painful mock trial, a horrendous death. None of this is straightforward or comfortable, but it's understandable. The spiritual work of Advent and Lent is based on our human experience of longing and hope, of sorrow and loss. We have the capacity to do this work. We know how to navigate this change. But the brilliant light and splendor of Easter erupts in a strange way to us. The empty tomb, the living body still carrying the injuries that shattered it, the man that his friends observed firsthand die a gruesome death, is now enjoying breakfast on the beach with them. Nothing in our human experience prepares us for this. We crawl along in the darkness of Advent, making our way slowly to the birth. In the shadows of Lent, we grope along, as Paul said, groping for God. When we're stopped and asked to pray in the garden or push out into deep water and let down our nets, then we have a clue about what we're supposed to do. But Easter is different. It feels like I'm staring into the sun. All of Easter is an explosion of signs and wonders. Easter is so brilliantly lit that it leaves us feeling astonished and blinking. Jesus' closest companions can't see clearly in the Easter light. Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize Jesus until she hears him say her name out loud. The disciples encounter Jesus out on the Emmaus Road, but don't recognize him until he stops and feeds them. For Thomas, remember, it was the physical touch of Jesus' body that finally allows him to balance his doubts and fears with this new reality. For me, this breakfast scene on the beach along the shore of the Sea of Galilee captures the glare of Easter the best. Imagine, the disciples are looking east. They're staring directly into the sun as it rises over the Golan Heights, and they're struggling to make out who it is that's speaking to them from the shore. They've worked the night shift again, toiling for fish just like they did when Jesus was in their lives, and and again... They've caught nothing. So Jesus called to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? And he answered, No. Cast your net on the right side and you'll find some. There were so many fish they couldn't haul in the net. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. If I'm counting, this is the third and most significant appearance of Jesus' disciples and followers after his resurrection, and they still do not grasp it all. The third time, it's taken three epiphanies after Jesus' life and ministry on earth, his crucifixion and death and resurrection, for his closest band of followers, including Peter, including Peter, to be converted to this new way of being, or partly converted, you decide. Their conversion of Jesus does not happen in an instant, in a flash, but over a period of time and through a variety of experiences and at various locations. It was Plato that said that conversion is not about implanting eyes. No, they exist already. But giving eyes a right direction, which they have not, is the work of conversion. We read today of, Brad read today of Paul's dramatic and instantaneous conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts. Wow! Could that happen to me? A blinding light from heaven striking down one of the greats of the faith. It must have been an amazing scene. For in an instant, Paul struck down a switch from a life of persecuting the followers of Jesus to becoming a dominant thought leader in the Christian faith. That's a conversion. Graggio, the artist, depicts Paul on the ground, knocked off his horse by the stupendous light, helpless, lying about the ground, temporarily blinded, arms and legs sprawling, stunned into submission. There are other dramatic conversion scenes. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he's convinced that Jesus is alive and whole again, and then the Roman centurion who witnessed firsthand Jesus' crucifixion, exclaiming, truly, this man was the Son of God. All these scenes and more take place suddenly and dramatically and emotionally and when least expected. All of them evolved an abrupt change of direction, an about-face, which is exactly what the word conversion means. But it's not likely that we might experience one of these about-faces or conversions, not as Presbyterians, anyway. Roger Nishioka, the ever-perceptive educator and pastor who was with us in November, says that, by and large, Presbyterians don't have these instantaneous, dramatic conversions. We just don't. Instead, we have something equally of value. We have a nurtured conversion. We accumulate thoughts and ideas and experiences, doubts and sorrows. We know joy and pain, and we somehow meld them into a unitary whole, an expansive reality that shapes our faith and motivates us, one hopes, into a life of faith and service. In the absence of a single, suttering, shattering event, there is at play in so many of us, a slow underground process of transformation that takes us to the same place in the end. It is what Jim Loder, who taught both Melissa Ann and I, a transforming moment. The 20th century Madeline, the 20th century writer Madeline Engel reflected on her own process for coming to faith to say that conversion for me was not a Damascus Road experience. I slowly moved into an intellectual acceptance of what my intuition had always known. You were here last week, perhaps at 930, when we celebrated the confirmation of nine wonderful young people. I have to admit I love confirmation. I love the kids coming to faith. I love the kids coming and standing right on this chancel and affirming what they can believe to be true about the mystery of God in the world. About this God who challenges and sustains them and never gives up on them. I love the kids, their questions, their honesty, their boldness. I love their honest fears of owning a faith they do not fully comprehend. And I love the tentative and halting answers to the big questions of faith Who is your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Do you trust in Him? I do. As a former minister to young people, I've led lots of confirmation classes. Some were as small as three. They would fit in my Volkswagen. And some as large as 90, which took several school buses. Each group was passionate and opinionated and a little bit haughty, but all were faithful to their calling. Last Sunday, each confirmand claimed a conversion of sorts that began when their parents had them baptized, some here in this very baptismal font. It was incredibly moving as a pastor to dab just a a bit of oil on their foreheads and to say, you have been blessed by the living God and this blessing will never forsake or abandon you. And not a few parents were converted along the way. But I have to confess something here, that I completely and totally failed my own confirmation as a kid. I have a vague memory as a middle school child of making my way to the local Methodist church, of slipping in the side door as class had started, wet late as is my signature weakness, and and trying to hide in plain sight. And all I remember from that multi-week experience is we made something out of a styrofoam ball, a white ball of styrofoam. That was all and that's all I remember. But truthfully, it was enough. It is enough. I was not struck down by a blaze of light as was the Apostle Paul. There was nothing dramatic, no instant conversion, no flash of light, nothing of the sort but a conversion nonetheless. It was, I suppose, a beginning transforming moment. I remember some time ago savoring a Poem by Denise Levertov, in which she uses the phrase "every step, an arrival." Every step an arrival. She was telling the story of her own growth and evolution as a poet, and I recognized in her phrase a metaphor for my own formation and perhaps for yours as well. Every step along the way, every step is an arrival. It was becoming the believer that I didn't know that I was becoming in the person that I now am. It was an essential component that was silently and slowly being integrated into a coherent life and vocation. It was an arrival, every step an arrival, and it was a beautiful and joyous thing. Once when traveling by airplane, the writer and Presbyterian memoirist, Anne Lamott was, she said, seated very awkwardly. This has happened to all of us, admit it, to someone she would have rather not been sitting next to. He was a large man and he was reading a book about the apocalypse, the end of the world. As soon as she sat down, he commented on the small gold cross that she was wearing, and then he asked her bluntly as they taxied down the runway toward takeoff Are you born again? She said, I did not know how to answer for a moment, but I said, Yes, I am. She continued her own story to say that my friends like to tell me that I'm really not a born again Christian. They think of me more or less along the lines of that old Jonathan Miller routine when he said, I'm not really a Jew, I'm Jewish. They think I'm Christianish, but I'm not. I'm just a bad Christian, a bad born again Christian. And certainly, like the Apostle Peter, I am capable of denying it all, of presenting myself as a sort of leftist liberation theology enthusiast and a general Jesus the Bonveillant. But it's not true. And I believe that when you get on an airplane, if you start lying, you're in a very bad place unto the Lord. (laughs) And so I told the truth, she said. I'm a believer, I'm a convert. I'm probably about three months away from slapping an aluminum Jesus-foil fish on the back of my car. I just love this guy. I could go to a gathering of foot Baptists and except for my dreadlocks, I'd fit right in. I would wash their feet. I would let them wash mine. Every story of conversion is a story of a blessed defeat, says C.S. Lewis. Now I'm drawn to this scene at the primacy of Peter on the shores of the Sea of Galilee because the story is about how we learn to live in the afterglow of Easter when it's all faded and we're trying to live with faith in the harsh, harsh light of the noonday sun. Jesus had been resurrected from the dead and was calling out to Peter. Jesus joined Peter beside a charcoal fire, the same kind of fire around which Jesus had denied his Lord. He broke the bread and passed it around and asked, Peter, do you love me? Three times, Jesus asked. Three times, Peter replied, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Jesus forgave Peter's failure and restored his identity and renewed his calling. It was the first day of the rest of Peter's life. The early Christians couldn't forget Peter's story because they saw themselves in it. No matter how inspiring is our first experience with Jesus, no matter how strong is our sense of calling, no matter we end up denying our Lord, we're tempted to say it was, it was great while it lasted, but I might as well go back to fishing. But morning comes and we're staring into the sun and the risen Christ shows up where we least expect him. When we confront our naked failures, we discover that the love of God is deeper than our arrival our denials, and that the calling of God is stronger than our failure to live up to it. In an Easter sermon at Riverside Church in New York City, William Sloan Coffin said that Christ is risen to convert us, not from this life to some other life, but from something less than life to the possibility of a full life. Easter is a demand not for sympathy with the crucified Christ, but a demand for loyalty to the resurrected Christ. Members of the early church knew Peter's story well. They knew how the wavering, Jesus-denying Simon became Peter, how Jesus raised his calling to a whole new level and declared Peter to be the rock, the foundation on which the church would be built. They knew that Peter followed his Lord to a cross, and they dared to believe that Jesus would do the same for each one of us that he would never give up on us. Thanks be to God for God's great love. So you are holy God of majesty and blessed is Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord. And Jesus, born of Mary, your word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. He lived as one of us, knowing our joy and sorrow. He healed the sick, fed the hungry. He opened blind eyes and broke bread with outcasts and sinners. He proclaimed the good news of your kingdom to the poor, to the needy, to the whole world. Dying on the cross, he gave himself for the life of the world. And rising from the grave, he won for us victory over death. Seated now at your right hand, he leads us forward into eternal life. So we praise you that Christ now reigns with you in glory and will come again to make all things new. So remembering your gracious acts in Christ, we take from your creation. This bread and this wine, and we joyfully celebrate his dying and rising as we await the day of his coming. With thanksgiving, we offer our very selves to you to be a living and holy sacrifice dedicated to your service.
3: Great is the mystery of faith.
2: Christ has died.
3: Christ is risen.
2: Christ will come again.
3: O gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts of bread and wine that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, that we may be one with all who share this feast, united in ministry in every place. As this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. And now we pray for our world. Remember your church this day, O God. it. In, this, in your word and empower it in ministry to the world. We pray for this interim time that you would continue to lead and guide us in our search for new staff and discernment in our ministry. Remind us that we are all called to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. We pray for the violence we seem to hear of every day, for the political conflict in Venezuela and elsewhere. We pray for the flooding, tornadoes, fires, and other natural disasters we've seen in our nation lately. We also pray for the natural disasters in the world lately, like the cyclone in India. We pray for strength for all in recovery efforts. We pray for healing for all who have been injured. And we pray for your comfort for those who have lost loved ones in these storms and events. We pray for all who have lost loved ones to other causes, to sudden illnesses, or long and drawn out ones. We pray for families with young kids who have lost a parent or other valuable family member, like that of Christian writer Rachel Hald Evans. We pray, O oh God, that she would comfort all who find themselves in the throes of grief and loss. Give them strength when they're not sure they can go on. Help remind them to put one foot in front of another. We pray for wellness and healing for all, for those affected by the measles outbreak, those who are affected by cancer and other chronic illnesses. We pray for your strength for these people to be able to walk on. We pray for all the other joys and concerns on our heart this morning. We pray this in union with your church in heaven and on earth. O God, that you will fulfill your eternal purposes in us and in all the world. Keep us faithful in your service until Christ comes in final victory, and we shall feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All glory and honor are yours, Almighty God, now and forever. We pray all of this as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art art in heaven, heaven. hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come,
2: thy thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give Give us this day our daily bread, and and forgive us our our debts, as as we we forgive our our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another Sermon from First Press.